Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Hi, this is a podcast of Journey Church. My name is Sarah, and I'm here with Pastor Jim and Pastor Tyler. We're going to spend some time talking about our upcoming sermon series on the atonement. So my first question is, what is the atonement? Uh, I would say that the atonement, we could think about it as the way in which God accomplishes his purposes of making peace with man. So like, even if we just think about uh, this Sunday, we took the Lord's Supper, and as we were wrapping up 2 Peter, we read uh, 2 Peter 3.14 twice, and the concept of being found by God at peace, uh, and that peace is accomplished by the atonement. I think we see something like that in Romans 3.25, where we see whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, the, show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And that concept of propitiation there, uh, in older translations, it translated it a sacrifice of atonement. And so God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, okay, so I heard the words propitiation, mm-hmm, and I heard word. sacrifice of atonement. Yeah. What do those words mean? Uh, so the concept that's getting that Paul's getting at there is that uh, peace is being made by the, we could say, the appeasement of God uh, through the sacrifice that is Christ. Mm, big, big words, and I love them. Um, the uh, propitiation, I've always known that to be the appeasement of wrath mm-hmm. that um, in this con- concept, sin sin is really, it's brutal and it, and it angers God. And uh, the atonement or propitiation in that, in that nuance is the satisfaction of God's anger. It's, it's satisfied, it takes it away. Um, some other big words in there is is uh, expiation um, and reparation. Can you? That it's actually well, it's it's at the heart of justice. Uh-huh. That whatever other, whatever debt has been incurred by man's rebellion, both on the whole and in the part, the whole body of mankind and individual sinful choices that hurt, anger, disturb God. Uh, the atonement satisfies all those and pays off a debt. So there are all these all these concepts woven in together, and that's that's where my mind goes in atonement. Uh, another, when we think specifically about atonement in the Christian faith and according to the scriptures, and really the sermon series that we're going into, it's not just the New Testament, Jesus on the cross, but there have been these pictures and foreshadowings of uh, the atonement, um, really, and there's another word that I'm gonna put with it, substitutionary atonement, that God is actually dealing with his, is is dealing with his justice and satisfying his own justice, but he's not taking it out on or exacting the justice per se from each individual human being. The reality is it's an, it's an infinite price that we just could not pay. And 
the atonement is when God actually substitutes someone or something else in our place. So you talked a little bit about um, paying a debt and um, and then also this idea of, of wrath and anger against sin. That seems um, um, on the one side very emotional and on the other side more legal how do you how do you hold both of those things together well both are true yeah i mean i i think we we worship a god who uh he has structured this world in such a way in which there are what we could call uh natural laws uh and i don't i don't mean gravity i mean there's a way in which things are supposed to work uh so in both Catholic and uh, historically Baptist circles, there's a robust understanding of how the world is supposed to work. They call it natural law. Some people get uncomfortable with natural law because of particular viewpoints in Catholicism. They refer to it as general revelation, that we can look out at the world and we see how things are, are supposed to be because our God is a rational God. He created the world uh, to make sense to us. But also our God is an emotional God. I mean, if you if you read through the Gospels in particular, you see all of these emotions associated with Christ. Uh, the most frequent one is the emotion of compassion, but you see all of these emotions associated with Christ. And you see them associated with God as well. That they, uh, If we are created in his image, there's a sense in which all the different things that we as people uh, experience, they have some connection back to God insofar as we can experience them free of sin. Mm -hmm. So our reason comes from God, our emotion comes mm -hmm. from God, our, our ability to uh, make decisions, to have a will, uh, and then to act on that will, uh, to, to have a certain uh, ability or power uh, to make our will happen. All of that comes from God. It's an aspect of who he created us to be in his image. Uh, and it's really important to keep that in mind because when we think about the notion of wrath, God's wrath is something that we experience or that the people experience both because of the violation of the law that he put in and the violation of, in a sense, God's emotive being, who God is in his emotions. We are his creatures and we have rebelled against him. And so you can almost think like, you know, I have two young sons. When they rebel against me, I have an emotive response to that. I, my emotions well up. Now, my emotions are not holy as God's are, but they are present uh, and they come from him. And so me as a father, one of the things I have to think about is how do I have holy emotions in the face of the frustration of fatherhood uh, and act on them well, but those come from God. As part of maybe in the thinking about creation, creator, mm -hmm. the creator and the creature mm -hmm. and that flow that everything that we have comes from the one who is the source of mm -hmm. who we are. Mm -hmm. And when we lose the, when we lose that concept of wrath, we lose so many other things. Um, this quote, it gets thrown around a lot. It's from uh, a guy named H. Richard Niebuhr, who is a um, Protestant theologian. He said a God, uh, he was describing the liberalism or the progressive theology of his day. And he said that they believe in a God without wrath, 
who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry or the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And so it's this concept of uh, this is actually what he's laying out there is the order in which we in our kind of contemporary society in what we might call uh, the liberal Western world, the the way in which we get uncomfortable with certain things in Christianity and then the order in which we get rid of them. So the first thing we get rid of is wrath. We don't like to talk about God's wrath, so we get rid of that. Well, if you get rid of God's wrath, you're not going to be able to make sense of sin, so we get rid of that. If you don't have sin, you're not going to be able to make sense of what judgment is. Uh, that goes back to what Jim was saying about justice. Justice and judgment go together, so you're going to have to get rid of judgment. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, you're just going to have, why on earth do we worship a, a first century Jew hanging on a cross? if none of those other things happened or if none of them are actual theological metaphysical categories. So eventually you're going to get rid of that. So you said the the first kind of, um, this makes us uncomfortable, we don't want to talk about it, is uh, uh, wrath, the mm -hmm. idea of wrath. In your, Jim, in your experience, what is it about wrath that makes people, that makes us uncomfortable, that makes mm -hmm. us, what, what makes it difficult? I think so many people want to buy into and they appreciate and a God of love. And they don't understand uh, a big word, theodicy. How could an all-loving, all-powerful God allow there to be evil, pain, and suffering in this world? And um, they'll be frustrated about that. And at the same time, they don't want judgment. What they don't understand is everything that they're longing for um, in a God of love and the absence of evil is answered in the judgment and wrath of God. Meaning this, God is patient, but their deepest longing to know that, that God is good and kind and loving. And their deepest confusion, why does he allow so much pain, evil, and suffering? If we understand that pain, evil, and suffering stems from man's rebellion, and you can even trace that back further to Lucifer's rebellion. Uh, that this is the silver bullet that answers everything. God's justice and wrath is out of his love to make right that which is wrong. So our problem is we just, we just want all the love and forgiveness for ourselves and all the wrath for our enemies. And we can't have it both ways. We actually all, all have to look to God and say, we messed up, we've rebelled, we do want justice, and we want love. And the atonement is where God satisfies all of that at once. It must be paid for, and our hearts cry out for that kind of justice. And so God is good in his wrath that he's going to actually settle all scores in the atonement. Well, one of the things I think is really important about that too is that the atonement is this sort of hinge point in doctrine where you can't get the atonement without all sorts of other theological beliefs. So the atonement doesn't work unless God is all-powerful, unless he's all-knowing. I mean, if you think about it, God has to know the, the extent of human sin in order for that to be something which Christ's death can uh, pay for, can atone for. Uh, as well, God has to... He has to know, or he has to be powerful enough to pay for it. He has to be gracious. He has to be kind. He has to be all of these things. Um, you don't get a concept of justice as well without it. I mean, I'm going to throw another one in there. Yeah, go for it. 
when we throw in the word substitutionary atonement, the one who is the substitute mm-hmm. has to be more than just a man mm-hmm. as well. And so when we look to Jesus, it, this argues for the deity of Christ as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam was the federal head because none of the children were born yet. Right. We were all in his loins, according to, to, to Paul's, Paul's language. But the second Adam has to be unique and different in that all of humanity needs to be provided for in, in his substitutionary atonement. Well, with that, you could connect it to the virgin birth. If he's mm-hmm. born of, if he has a um, ancestral father in that sense, so if Joseph is Jesus' actual father, then he's not a new covenant head. Mm-hmm. He's still, he is under Adam's covenant. Yep. Uh, which then causes all sorts of questions about inherited sin and things like that. But I think, one of the reasons why I mentioned justice at the end there is uh, we can only rightly understand justice in a world in which the atonement took place. And there's an actual, a really good example of that taking place right now in terms of uh, the Russian-Ukraine conflict where you have uh, the Ukrainian president um, who has displayed immense courage throughout this whole thing. But I was reading on CNN's website earlier today or or last night, and he made the comment uh, at some point over the weekend that there will be no forgiveness for the things that are taking place here, uh, for for what's happening um, to Ukraine by Russia. And there's this uh, American temptation that I think we have, which is to embed uh, any evil thing in a singular individual, and then we can cast that individual into some sort of like ethereal metaphorical hell and we don't have to let their sin seep into everybody else is it would you say cancel cultures is kind of a yeah a picture of that in a sense yeah i mean it's cancel culture is basically um if you read uh we'll touch on this a little bit when Mm -hmm. we when we teach through the the atonement series but it's basically the concept of a scapegoat just acted out on a human being on and, and, and virtue signaling, yes. I am better than that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I put my sin on them, mm-hmm. and then I send them away. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. But we do that all the time, which is why, uh, you know, like right now, if people, people talking about the Ukraine-Russia conflict, one of the things that they're likely to talk about, I just had to explain this to my six-year-old son, mm-hmm. uh, because as he hears me talk about it, he, he had taken on the assumption that you had a country... Uh, where just one man lived in it. Because every time I talk about Russia, I then talk about Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. And he's the he's the bad guy. And so we, we kind of put like all of this negative stuff on Vladimir Putin. And I, I want to be clear, like I don't think all of the Russian people are responsible for what's taking place in Ukraine right now. But what is the Russian military made up of? Russian people. What are the Russian generals giving orders made up of? Russian people. So there's a sense in which there's a lot of people in Russia who disagree with Vladimir Putin. There's a lot of people who are, whether they agree or not, are going along with it. Uh, and what's then taking place is the president of Ukraine is saying, we will never forgive what's taking place right now. Well, that means that even if they win the conflict, there is a way in which they will lose immensely because what's going to happen is their neighboring country will have in it people who are either involved in or related to somebody who has now become a military aggressor. And if they can't find a way to forgive, 
then you're going to have the divisions that sow seeds of civil war. And one of the things that takes place is uh, we, because we are not omniscient, we don't know everything like God does, we can never achieve perfect justice. We, can, we will always either go overboard and victimize somebody who wrongs us so that they become the victim and we are now the oppressor, or we will underachieve justice, in which case ju justice won't be done. And so the only way to actually trust that justice will take place is to trust that there's a holy God who has both made atonement for sin, but also has the wrath necessary to punish sins that have not been forgiven, that have not been uh, covered with the blood of Christ. And so really, the the thing that Ukraine needs two things in, in this conflict. They need A, to survive, and B, they need the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Because without the gospel, there is no forgiveness. Yep. And one more one more idea there is when, mm -hmm. when we choose not to forgive, mm -hmm. we're just so deeply hurt, and we want to hold people accountable um, ad nauseum, like even if they, they confess, they, they uh, offer reparation and we mm -hmm. just can't let it go, that in effect becomes double jeopardy. Mm -hmm. That that sin has been paid for mm -hmm. and we want to exact payment also. Mm -hmm. Unforgiveness is like that. I'm, I'm reminded of how you started, Tyler, quoting Second Peter and that um, while you're waiting for the judgment of God to be at peace, mm -hmm. and there's a sense of that peace is not available yeah. if um, if there's there's no justice, no forgiveness, and we're not looking outside of ourselves mm -hmm. for that peace. And then I was reminded of Romans 12. Um, uh, so as, if possible, this is the end of Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Um, and then on the on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him, give him mm -hmm. something to drink. Um, for, by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, which is interesting. But then it ends with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Mm -hmm. And that, that real sense of leave it to God. And then the last thing I, I think about in terms of thinking atonement, peace, and this conflict that's going on is that um, maybe you can touch on this a little bit that that a Levitical idea of the eye for an eye, mm -hmm. um, and and that kind of justice and and then how that shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Well, I do know this eye for an eye is justice and reparation, but we can't afford to live out that kind of justice. Uh, who is it that said? Gandhi. Yeah, Gandhi. Mm -hmm. It leaves the whole world blind. And by Which the way, really it just leaves never... the whole world without depth perception. <laughs> it's only one eye. One eye. But, but it always escalates. It yeah. always escalates. Mm -hmm. It's like little kids it's a, it's throwing the, punches. The, um, what's that show? The Hatfields and the McCoys. The I, few, I, was thinking the, right? I was thinking of them, but it doesn't stop. And it keeps getting worse and worse because our own perception, and this actually, wow, this. This permeates this whole whole thing, and why why we have to back we have to back down. Justice is good, and it will come. The problem is, I'm so messed up in in my feelings about it and what people have done to me. I get it wrong all the time. Over, I overkill or or undersell, and typically I undersell my own sin and underjudge myself, and I oversell those who sin against me, and so it always escalates. I'm not worthy of what you did to retaliate. 
you overdid it. Now I'm going to show you, and it just keeps going. And so to stage down, to back down, to, to the eye for an eye thing really is true and good and holy, but I can't figure that out and we're all blind and there is a substitutionary atonement that takes that, that fixes it, that judges it. He, God, Yahweh judges perfectly. He knows the exact payout. payout. He nails it. And um, I need to step back and let God be the judge. Jesus is not only the substitutionary atonement, he is the high priest. He judges between us. He gets it right. He knows who's at fault. And if we all entrust our souls to him as our righteous judge, and it's paid for, justice is served. We don't have to be go around angry, having debts against everyone be they Christian brothers or, or people that are, that are in the world. So it seems like that the, the fruit of that is a, is a freedom to really love well. And even and, love our enemies. And love, yes. And, and forgive debts. And you, yeah. you had mentioned the, the Sermon on the Mount is there's two places. The love your enemies is one place where the, that hangs. Um, the other place is in the Beatitudes. So you have, these statements which begin the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is, is making, uh, a former professor of mine argued uh, that, that we shouldn't use the word that is in most English translations because if you put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, uh, you say a different word that has a, a different connotation. So there's blessed and blessed. Mm -hmm. uh, blessed is actually a, a manner in which you go through life, but blessed, which legitimately they're spelled exactly the same. It's just mm -hmm. in you should have an accent marker and one's on the first D and one's on the second D. Blessed accent on the second D, how do you go through life? Uh, are you, uh, what's your disposition as you go through life? Blessed is uh, about your relationship to God and about essentially his uh, His joy in you, his his uh, enjoyment as he looks down. Almost like his, favor? Yeah, kind of yeah. And so he said, yeah, this professor of mine, Jonathan Pennington, argues that you shouldn't interpret it, that because that word's so confusing, the easiest way to read it is actually just to say flourishing, a flourishing life. And so he, so the Beatitudes then say, you know, there's the poor in spirit, there's those who mourn, those, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, the pure in heart, who will see God. And then verse nine uh, of Matthew chapter five, is the flourishing or flourishing life will come to, is a way to interpret that, uh, those who are peacemakers. And one of the fascinating things is, comma, why? For they will be called sons of God. And so as we think about it, it's like there's almost this, and the word flourishing is interesting because it, it has this almost connotation of like social science, which is true. It's the, the, a life of gratitude and forgiveness in terms of how social science looks at it is actually a better life. It is a life of flourishing. And Jesus is saying, hey, you will go through life with a better disposition. The, the blessing of God will actually be upon you because of how you, you will experience it because of how you approach life. And the, those who strive for peace will experience it. They will be called sons of God. And then he unpacks that a bit later in terms of you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. And so you have this, you know, if we love our friends and hate our enemies, there is no distinction visible between Christians and non-Christians. There is no distinction visible between those who, who have experienced and accepted the cost of the atonement and those who have not. And if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is to say if the atonement which Christ paid in a sinless life and in a substitutionary death means anything, it should have an import on our life. Throughout this entire Second Peter series, one of the things we've been touching on again and again was that our theology affects how we live. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if we don't want to surrender things in our life, that re in reverse affects our theology. And so there's this two-way street there. And in a sense, what's happening here is there's, a, there's the, Jesus is drawing out, if you really believe what I'm teaching you, what, I'm, what it means to follow me, what I'm going to do with my entire life project in this world, if you really believe that, you're going to have to live a different way. And one of those ways in which you will be different is people will position themselves toward you as enemies, but you will not position yourself towards them as enemies. Mm. You will position yourself towards them in love. So we get to actually do the Sermon on the Mount later on this year. Yeah. And even as you mentioned the Beatitudes, um, you're talking about in focusing it on the one side of me getting even with those who've hurt me. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting how that actually permeates all the Beatitudes. Yeah. Uh, for instance, the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, what, is, what does that mean? And I would argue that that is a person that is that has zero self-righteousness. Mm -hmm. They're actually recognizing before God that they don't have a leg to stand on, that they are the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one, um, blessed are those who mourn. That can be things that have been done to me instead of getting even and... and, and um, anger is always a secondary emotion. Anger. I, I default to anger because at least it makes me feel like I'm doing something. But to actually mourn and feel sorrow and sadness uh, over things that disappointments and hurts and wounds that, um, yeah, absolutely, I'll mourn the things that I do wrong when, it, when they're brought to my attention and the Holy Spirit points those out. But, but perhaps in this, this context, I take my, the things that have been, been done against me and I take them before the Lord with a broken heart instead of defaulting to that secondary emotion of anger and lashing out. And that flows into mercy. Uh, even when I have a just reason to strike at someone that, is, that has unjustly hurt me and, and the evidence is clear and I have the right to do that, but instead I choose mercy instead of getting even. Um, and then there's one more in there, meekness. I have the nukes. I have the power. I have the muscle that I can actually flex that against my enemy in a just manner. And, and again, I'm talking about my own personal life. Um, when I'm the poor in, poor in spirit, when I am the one who mourns, uh, I'm, in a, I'm on, a, on a footing where I can actually exercise mercy. I can actually be meek. I have the power, I have the ability to do something very damaging in exact payment from someone, but instead I choose not to flex my muscle. That's meekness and so forth but it's throughout always, those beatitudes. All of these choices are built on, I'm choosing not to do that, 
because of the one who is perfect in doing that, mm -hmm. right? I'm yeah. choosing, mm -hmm. I'm always choosing to go. It, it's not just because I've decided to be the better person in this scenario, because that's not strong enough to right. keep me from right. exacting the justice I want. Yeah. And, and it's and only people, when I look to God who mm -hmm. is the perfect. And the people mm -hmm. who tick me off, who cross Judge. me or, or strike out against me, all the way to the point of being my mortal enemies, I can fall back on the judgment of God knowing that justice has been or will be actually served. And that is at the heart of the atonement. It's either paid for or will be paid for. So I love this. This is, this is my, my theme verse for the atonement. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 21, that explains so, so rich in so much theology for our sake. He made him to be sin. That's going to actually be the, the, the last uh, sermon in, uh, we're going to look at an Old Testament picture of this. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the substitutionary atonement. The perfect person of God incarnate being made sin itself. Which, again, you could write books on that. Books have been written on that. Just that one idea. So I'm going to pull point back toward the sermon series we're starting. Because it's not, um, the atonement is kind of a broad, there's, there's many paths you could take. Mm -hmm. The path we've chosen to take is, let's look at pictures, at um, typographic, typological, yep. typological yeah. examples um, in the Old Testament, but uh, specifically in the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So can we talk a little bit about why did we choose there? What did the atonement mean? And what does the atonement mean in the Old Testament context? What, what, why that kind of specificity? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why we wanted to go into the Old Testament, because there's a lot of different ways, like you said, we could have done this, could have done like, uh, you know, a sermon series looking through the elements of Holy Week in like the Gospel of Mark, or we could have done uh, a sermon series talking about sacrifice and things like that. But one of the reasons for grounding it in the Old Testament is to show the continuity of the story of Scripture. Uh, the one of the things that strikes me is the Holy Spirit plus the Old Testament, anybody with that living in Jesus' day should have been able to see it. Uh, they should have been able to see, oh, here's what's happening. Here's what's God, what God is doing. Uh, and, and they missed it. And it's not because God fundamentally changed how he worked in the world. He had been showing them what was necessary from the very beginning. So, I mean, when, uh, when Jim takes the first sermon, he's going to take he's going to talk about Genesis 3. I mean, right after sin enters the world. And so we're like, from the very beginning, we see this need for a sacrifice, this need for a, a atonement and for God's wrath against sin to be appeased and for us to return to a place of peace with God. Uh, and then, so that's one of the reasons for looking back into the Old Testament is to show the continuity of the story. That It's not something different taking place uh, from Matthew forward as mm -hmm. from Malachi back. Uh, it's the same story. And then... I, I think yeah. I just want... I want to reiterate that. I think it's so... I, 
it's so meaningful to me to hear over and over and again, and we're going to be looking at passages from the Old Testament, that it's all one story, that this mm-hmm. isn't, it mm-hmm. isn't, that was one God or one kind of God or God when he felt this way. And now here's God changing his mind or feeling differently, but it's one, it's one yeah. big idea. Mm-hmm. This is a beautiful idea. It comes from uh, John's revelation and, and where Jesus is, his title is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. And the idea there that that this was not a plan B, like, oopsie, I didn't realize that they were going to destroy my creation. Now what are we going to do? But that God had a plan. And the plan was Jesus. And before, you know, in the New Testament, um, I I forgot the exact reference, but I love, love this language. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The fullness of time at the right time that the story was going to unfold according to God's beautiful, beautiful design. He is, he is a, a novelist par excellence of taking all these different uh, divergent themes and, and plot lines and weaving them in to get together to the fullness of time, that, that uh, climax, that pinnacle, the cross. But don't think that it was an afterthought or it was... Uh, something that arised out of a, a storyline that evolved and how God wondering, wringing his hands, how can we actually fix this? But that it's, it's pre-planned, that God knows and that the plan, God begins to drop those hints in very early so that we could pick up on those clues that we could actually look back and go, wow, this was God's God's heart, his character, his his morality, his justice, his goodness, his love, his redemption, all along. And God wanted us to pick up on those themes. There's some other, you know, you're talking about um, the continuity, uh, you know, the New Testament, because there is a, a current heresy. It's been a long, it's been a, around since the beginning, nothing new under the sun, but um, that idea that all you need is the New Testament. All, all you need is the red letters of the Gospels, the words of Jesus. All you need, and that's all we should actually do when, when Jesus himself actually said, says, in the red letters, um, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, mm-hmm. but that all should be fulfilled. And then Paul would say, uh, these things were written for our instruction. Uh, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. How can we have encouragement from the scriptures when we don't know all the scriptures? Mm-hmm. Paul telling Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Mm-hmm. And so um, part of that is just being good, a good pastor, good pastors, and familiarizing people with the entire uh, story of the scriptures, but also the, the chronicle, chronological timeline and the unfolding of God's redemptive plan of the ages. And seeing that it, there's a this beautiful scarlet thread that's woven throughout the entirety of the scripture from the very beginning to the very end. Yeah, I think it's helpful to view the Bible in a sense as not just a, a sort of spiritual textbook that we go to for you know nourishment for our spiritual lives. It it is in very much it teaches us how to live a spiritual life. In fact, the word I come from a place where everybody likes to say that they're spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, spiritual, actually, the, the origins of that word are found in Paul's letters. And mm-hmm. the first, mm-hmm. Paul actually is the first person to use that word that way. Um, but 
this book is actually simultaneously a book of metaphysics. It's a book about reality. It is a book of epistemology and knowledge and how we come to know things. Uh, and so I, I, one of the reasons why we, we wanted to ground in the Old Testament was also just, this is the way in which God chose to teach his people, mm. was the gospel is a hard thing to grasp, which is why we run to these defaults of, like I said, with the, the liberal Protestants of the 19th century, with, you know, when they're rejecting wrath, when they're rejecting the cross, when they're rejecting judgment and sin and those concepts, those concepts run very much against the grain of who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we needed to learn these things. And God, in his providence, walked people through various events that are recorded for us in scripture so that we could learn them because we are we are a people who I, I just recently heard this uh it's easier to learn something by seeing than hearing but it's much easier to learn by doing rather than seeing mm -hmm. and so god had to teach if there's a continuity to who the people of god are to what god's been doing with a people in this world then he's been showing us for centuries what it looks like to be in a relationship with him and how that relationship is one in the justification, in the atoning death of Christ, how it is won, and how it is maintained by coming back again and again in faith to Christ. Which is why the book of Hebrews and the book of Romans can say, hey, you know, Abraham saved in the same way you do. Because he was saved because he trusted in what God said. We are saved too because we trust what God said. We just land on the opposite side historically of the cross. So we trust what was in the we trust what God said in the past and what it's doing now. And he trusted what God was doing then and what it meant for the future. So what, so my next question is, um, hey, why this sermon series now? So think about, um, we just came out of, we just spent uh, quite almost a year mm -hmm. in First and Second Peter. Um, when you started that sermon series, I didn't work here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we started First Peter Easter, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So a yep. long, a long time in the um, what do you call the epistles that aren't the Pauline epistles, the Catholic general or Catholic uh, epistles? So a long time there. Um, also, kind of, uh, hey, we're uh, journey church, the expression of the local body, um, or the local expression of the body, and then um, culturally. Um, in terms of the times and the seasons, mm -hmm. all those things. Why? So why this series now? And, and I'm going to say, you know, the, the resurrection is what sets apart uh, Christianity of, of any other faith. It's not a borrowed thing. It's, it's that which backs up what God has said as being true. Uh, Jesus is the only person who predicted his death and then and, and said, I will rise again and then pulled it off. So whatever he says is golden. No one ever else did that. People made bold claims. People have also risen from the dead in the Christian faith or the old covenant. Um, however, nobody said, I'm going to die and then I'm going to come back like Jesus did. So if he did that and the tomb is empty, which it is, what did he accomplish? What was he backing up? What was he proving? Failsafe, proving. And my answer is he was proving that when, when he claimed that he was going to go to the cross for the sins of mankind and pay them, 
in all the scripture and all the prophecies and all of the, the typologies and all the foreshadowings throughout the Old Testament leading up to that moment. Uh, and God, God actually saying that, that in, in so doing this, the payment for sin will be complete. It is finished. That's why Jesus rose from the dead, because someone could say, oh yeah, I'm going to die, and when I do that, I'm actually God paying for the sins of the world. And then you're dead, and you're just a kook. So, so on Easter, we celebrate the resurrection. But I'm just going to do a yeah. little personal comment right there. Right when Tyler first moved here, I think I was, in, I was reading Acts, yeah. and I, I said, Tyler, what's the deal with the resurrection? Because I know we have Easter every year, and obviously I know what the resurrection is, but... Uh, in the book of Acts, the apostles are crazy about the resurrection. Like mm -hmm. they keep pointing to it and keep pointing to it and saying, no, because of this, because of this, because of this. And what, what is making them point to it so much? I think what, what you just said is the answer. Yeah, what's, what's the truth behind the resurrection? The, the resurrection is like a golden seal, stamp of approval. Like, yep, when he said it is finished on the cross and then he rises from the dead, we can go, yep, I'm pretty certain it's finished. Mm -hmm. What's finished? The substitutionary atonement. Mm -hmm. Bam. Mm -hmm. So I'll add to that by you asked why we wanted to do this. Uh, and there's the, the short run answer is we're headed towards Easter. Mm -hmm. And the, the atonement, uh, you cannot separate the doctrine of the atonement from the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're essentially running up to in these, we're going to look at these pictures in the Pentateuch where God foreshadows the atonement, and then we're going to hit Good Friday, and we're going to mourn the death of our Savior, and then we will come back on Easter Sunday, and we will celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. And then one of the things that we're doing is we're couching this entire series in, if I can give a peek behind the curtain, uh, in a year in which we're looking at, we looked at 2 Peter. When, when I got here, we were looking at 2 Peter, uh, which is be cautious about what's taking place in the church. Be mindful of yourself. Be mindful of the church. Watch out for false doctrine. Mm -hmm. Then what is the thing on which the church rises or falls. Well, it's the doctrine, it's, it is who Jesus Christ is, the doctrine of the atonement, the resurrection, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So then we're, we talked about being cautious about false doctrine. We're talking about the primary doctrine that, as Jim said, sets Christians apart from everybody else. And then we're going to look at the book of Esther briefly, and then we're going to go into the Sermon on the Mount, which the book of Esther is how do you live as a faithful follower of Yahweh in a dark uh, and fallen in the sense of sinful, uh, worldly, pagan, secular mm -hmm. uh, kingdom. And it gives us snapshots of that. And it gives us snapshots that feel very real because A, they historically are real, but B, they also feel like our actual lives because you don't, uh, when we're in the midst of stuff, often we don't feel like God is present. And the book of Esther actually mm -hmm. never tells you that God is present, except for there are these reoccurring phrases and themes that are almost like the author is subtly hinting at this happened because of this. It, it just so happened 
is like the the theme of the book mm-hmm. of Esther. It mm-hmm. just so happened that <laughs> this happened right when this happened, and this person was in the courtyard, and this person overheard this. All of these things are just providentially being orchestrated. Mm-hmm. And then you go into the Sermon on the Mount where where you're looking at basically uh, the Gospel of Matthew is structured around five big teaching blocks. And each one of them kind of expands on an aspect of the faith which Jesus is bringing his disciples into. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first of those five. So in a sense, it's like Christianity 101. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, here is the boot camp version. Here is the intro intro kind of seminar on Christianity. Here's what Jesus is doing and a picture at how his project is fundamentally different than all the other projects of that this world offers. There is no philosophy. There is no uh, worldview that offers what Jesus is offering in this. And he's giving his disciples that. And part of the heart behind that, as Jim and I talked about it, was just a desire as we come out of COVID to think about what are the ways in which the church has changed and what are the things the church needs to be mindful of? What does it look like to be faithful followers of Christ in a world that seems increasingly pagan and increasingly secular? Mm -hmm. And in a, in a time when a lot of people have just forgotten what it means to be Christians because, I mean, we spent so long away from each other and community is a big part of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many studies, whether Barna or Pew, show that we uh, are increasingly lacking biblical knowledge. I loved what Jim said on Sunday. Um, correct me if I get this wrong, but we are the, you said we are the most resourced, resourced. Uh, generation in church history, yeah. but we are far from the most robust generation mm-hmm. in church history. Uh, and so it's just, you know, when you think about those things together, the book of Esther is a great place to go to think about pay, to think about faithfulness in the midst of increasing paganism, increasing secularism. And the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to go when you think about, we just need Christianity 101 because a lot of us have forgotten how to do this thing. We have fundamentally extracted justification by grace through faith. We've extracted that and played that up to the max, never really considering apprenticing our lives after Jesus of Nazareth. It's like we're all living with deathbed conversions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like. But we're living it. Like, yeah. and, and it's not, I'm not going to turn negative or pejorative against um, the gospel and, and call it something like easy believism or fire insurance. I believe that the gospel is free, but it was never meant to be extracted from the Jesus life in the way that we've actually been able to pull it off throughout all Western Christendom. And so getting back to to a lifestyle, Mm -hmm. rhythms and a lifestyle in in a, a faith that actually believes Jesus was not making this stuff up. He really intended us to follow and he spells it out in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. And the gospel is what saves, but it's also what sanctifies. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we don't have another tool at our disposal. We have a triune God and we have the message of that triune God. And that, yeah. that's all we've got. Well, another way we, we can even describe it that I've done many times is uh, a narrow gate and a narrow path. Mm-hmm. And so many of us take the gift and step inside the narrow gate, pull off to the side and park it for life. And we never intend to actually press in and up and and into the kingdom of God in following the path that Jesus has for us. So that that seems to be one of the greatest pathologies of Western Christianity 
is truncating the gospel, truncating the opportunity that's in front of us to actually walk into eternal life right now today. So. Any recommendations as we're uh, moving into, it's five weeks, six weeks until. Week six is, is week Easter. Six is Easter. Mm -hmm. So we have about a six week period. How, how can we be in our own time? Um, uh, thinking about these things, added, added resources for meditation or study or um, specifically for the atonement yeah. series. Uh -huh. Well, we've talked about in, in assuming uh, I can get my act together, one of the things that we're going to be doing is um, just doing real quick little kind of beginning of the week uh, reflections on Holy Week. So you have an opportunity to read through, hey, here's what, in the Gospel of Mark, here's what Jesus did each day of Holy Week, and kind of reflect through that, thinking with each week then, you kind of reflecting on what it meant for Christ to die and rise by the time you're coming in. So you have that opportunity to read through the ending of each of the four Gospels and go, okay, so here's what he did on Monday. Here's what he did on Tuesday. Here's what he did on Wednesday. Uh, he didn't do anything on Thursday. Here's what he did on Friday. And then coming in on Sunday, having thought about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and then hearing either Jim or I open up the scriptures mm -hmm. and point to this Old Testament passage mm -hmm. that was intended to prepare the hearts of the Jewish people for the coming Messiah. Mm -hmm. Also, just Jim's comments about gates and paths and things like that just made me want to read Pilgrim's Progress. Mm. So, I mean, that's yeah, I'm looking at it on my shelf right here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I if I could get my act together, I actually had that book right there, The Passionate Journey. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's good or not, but it but it's uh, Reflections and uh, the Journey Toward the Cross or Toward Easter. Mm -hmm. And there's resources like that. I was just kind of pondering the bigger year mm -hmm. um, that this is my year of... of uh, deep reflection and, and uh, spiritual formation. I've made it my ambition to be reading Dallas Willard, who just went to be with Jesus, I think, last year or a uh, year and a half ago. Um, and that Sermon on the Mount is at the heart of that. But what I find myself in my life, I'm actually living more like in the book of Esther, where I'm running fast. Um, I'm not regretting it. I'm not complaining or saying, look at me, I'm, I'm really busy and that, that makes me bad. But I'm, I'm living, um, juggling a lot of things. And uh, on a year that I said, it's going to be a year of deep pondering, reflection, uh, listening, prayer, these kinds of spiritual formation exercises. And instead, it's go, 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 go. And where's God and all that? Mm -hmm. But the beauty of that is, is as we, we talk about this, God's got me. Mm -hmm. And to remember, he, he is uh, a gentle and lowly master. He loves me in the midst of my busyness. When I find myself doing a lot of serving with other people, um, I, I haven't even done my taxes. Those are just hanging over my head. and a lot, I've got my own to-do list, but um, I'm serving others and finding joy in that. But what it means is I'm not doing deep, profound reflection as much as I thought I would be doing by this point in my life. And so the reason why I'm saying this is even coming back to Esther, uh, you were making some comments there. God has never mentioned in the book of Esther the most spiritual that Esther becomes is that when Esther is going to go in before the king, she asks for the Jews to fast. She doesn't even say pray, just to fast. 
And there's nothing really too spiritual about that. But what you have is a God who is very good, very sovereign, working out his plans in a very secular age with people who actually seem to be uh, fairly spiritually shallow. Mm-hmm. I'll throw just one more on there. Um, I don't know the name of it. But we're all fans of Tim Keller here. And uh-huh. uh, Tim Keller was, uh, just before COVID, was uh, diagnosed with, I want to say pancreatic cancer. Yes. And it's his second, yes. second go through. Um, I just listened to a, a podcast with him on it the other day, and it sounds like he's actually doing pretty well. Uh, praise God for that, because it's not usual that somebody at this this point would be this far after the diagnosis would be doing well. But he wrote a book, uh, Hope in, in Times of Fear, Hope in Fearful Times, something like that. Uh, and it's it was actually, uh, I, I just started it. It is a, a reflection on two things simultaneously. Uh, it, he was writing it at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And it was a reflection on feeling like he was given a death sentence and being given that in the run up to prepping for Easter. Mm. Uh, and so he was, uh, um, so he, he is, it is a, a meditation on his life um, and a meditation on the importance of faith in the resurrection. Because it's this, uh-huh. it's almost this apologetic moment of, of, wow, I I really better believe this because even though I banked all my life on it, I now see the end coming, uh, mm. and and do I really believe there's something on the other side to this? I want to pull on you said faith in the resurrection, and you were talking about that too. Mm. I think um, it seems like this this order of Second Peter atonement, Esther, Sermon on the Mount. There's this through line of faith. And how faith, faith interacts with how we live, faith, but but faith is, um, is trust is belief and trust. So so knowing, agreeing, and trusting, acting upon that belief in who God is, in who God is and what He says He yeah. is, and and so you have that um, as opposed to the false teachers, you have that in what in what Christ has done for us, what. Who God, like what you said at the beginning, mm-hmm. that this is one big story. Here's who God is. This is the plan from the beginning. Um, Esther, that that is faith in, 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 and even what you said about why I have to do my taxes. Well, faith is for that because mm-hmm. God is God, right? And is it only, God isn't only God when we have spiritual retreats and can get away. He's mm-hmm. God in the everyday. And what that looks like in the everyday is the Sermon on the Mount where we're mm-hmm. headed mm-hmm. toward. So you have this kind of, through line of of the life of a life of faith um that that seems without i just i'll throw in one recommendation it's a um it's kind of like a maybe a uh um easier um uh, a dramatic telling of the of the story of of christ's death and resurrection it's the Passion of the King of Glory by Russ Ramsey. Mm. And so there are short chapters that mm. you can just read one a day. And it, it tells kind of the story. It's almost like watch, watching a TV show where each episode kind of goes through and tells a story of. Mm-hmm. So you get these little pictures of what, what it was like for Jesus. So kind of along the lines of that Holy Week. And then the, the last thing I'll say is on our um, Spotify account, we have a playlist that's that's music of the atonement that, that is 
in music and imagery and poetry and all different varieties um, and um, scripture settings and psalms, um, uh, pictures of the atonement that mm -hmm. way too. So, mm -hmm. all right. Well, thank you mm -hmm. both of you. Yep. And um, we'll look forward to starting this on Jim's going to go do his taxes. Yeah, go do your <laughs> God taxes. Willing. <laughs> God willing. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.